Welcome to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series, hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University. The Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series is designed to highlight the three institutions that must work together to support and defend a free civil society. Joining us today is Dr. Michelle Albert Vacris. Dr. Vacris is a professor of Management, Business, and Economics at Virginia Wesleyan University and Professor Emerita at Christopher Newport University. She's a past president and distinguished fellow of the Virginia Association of Economists and co-editor of the Virginia Economic Journal. Today, she'll discuss her co-authored book, Pride and Profit, The Intersection of Jane Austen and Adam Smith. Super. Uh, thank you all for coming out tonight, and a special thanks to uh, the Koch Center and ESU for sponsoring my visit, and to uh, Derek and, and Patrick for being such fabulous hosts. I'm very much enjoying my first visit to Kansas, beautiful, beautiful country. So uh, yes, tonight we're going to talk about uh, Jane Austen and Adam Smith. So why? What, what would these two authors have in common? Uh, Adam Smith is probably most well known as being the founder of economics as a separate discipline from moral <coughs> philosophy, although he started out as a moral philosopher with theory of moral sentiments. He wrote in kind of the uh, late 1700s. Jane Austen wrote fiction, and uh, she published in the early 1800s. She was uh, a member of sort of the gentry uh, society of, of England at the time. So Smith is Scottish, uh, Austin is, is, uh, was British. Um, roughly speaking, Smith could have been uh, a young grandfather or an old father to Austin in terms of their age difference. So what do they have in common and why should we care? Well, before we get started though, I just want to gauge the uh, 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 the, the audience in terms of your familiarity with Jane Austen. How many of you have read any of Jane Austen's novels? Okay, a handful, very nice. Um, how about the movie adaptations? Probably the most famous ones are Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, I would guess. These are the two most recent film adaptations that I've seen of Austen's work. Uh, Love and Friendship was based on one of her short sto shorter stories, uh, Lady Susan, and then of course Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Um, oddly enough, much of the uh, much of the, the the speeches, much of the uh, the text in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is straight out of Pride and Prejudice. You know, she just the film just added in the zombie part. So. Now. These, these are the two most recent uh, adaptations of Austen's work that I've seen in the theater. I did recently see, there was a television movie, Pride and Prejudice Atlanta. So it was an up-to-date version of Pride and Prejudice with a family that lived in Atlanta. So that, that was a good one, too. Of course, my favorite adaptation of Jane Austen's work is Clueless, based on the, uh, the novel Emma. I hear that there's going to be uh, a, an updated version of Clueless, so I'm, I'm waiting on the edge of my seat for that to come out. 
All right, so why should we care about some uh, a writer from the Scottish Enlightenment and a, uh, a British novelist uh, today? Well, in our book, Cecil and I argue that Smith's main philosophy is based on this concept that we as human beings, we, we want to be loved, but we want to be worthy of that love. We want praise, but we want to deserve the praise. In other words, today we would say, we want to get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and like what we see. So that's the basic starting point with Smith's moral philosophy. And I don't, we don't think that's changed too much from Smith and Austin's time. We all still want to be loved and lovely, praised and praiseworthy, but we're subject to being deluded especially by ourselves. Sometimes when we look in the mirror, we see what we want to see, not necessarily what is. Then and now, human nature is pretty similar, we argue. And both Smith and Austin were, were very much interested in trying to find a path, a moral path through life, to, to help us avoid the temptations of taking a lesser path. I think that sounds familiar to us today. At least I hope that by the end of the talk I'll convince you of that. So I'm going to start by giving you an overview of Smith's moral philosophy, virtues and vices, and then I'll weave in examples from Jane Austen's uh, novels. So our main idea then is that we can, we can learn a lot about Adam Smith by reading Jane Austen, and we can learn a lot about Jane Austen by reading Adam Smith. Uh, in fact, we think that Jane Austen, not, she doesn't just illustrate, she also extends Smith's thought. All right, so here's the basic uh, virtues that Smith talks about in Theory of Moral Sentiments. Prudence, benevolence, and justice, we call them the PB&J virtues. And each of these are then rooted in something called self-command. So first I'll go through uh, prudence, and then benevolence, and then justice, and then this thing called self-command. And then we'll look at the, the vices. All right, so prudence. Prudence means self, prudence is an, a self-directed virtue. You take care of yourself. You don't, uh, you don't spend beyond your means. You are, are careful about risk-taking. And you don't really get into other people's business. You take care of yourself, and then you let the other person take care of him or herself. Doesn't sound like very much fun, but it's certainly an important, important virtue. And Smith says the reason we practice virtue is because we're afraid of, of failure. We're, we're risk averse. We want to be secure in our position. Smith says that we suffer more when we fall from a, a, a higher position to a lower position than we ever gain from moving from a lower position to a higher position. So moving up the ladder makes us happy, but it doesn't make us as happy as moving down the ladder makes us unhappy. So in order to avoid that fall, Smith says we develop this thing called prudence. So here's uh, prudence in Smith and Austin. So in uh, 
theory of moral sentiments, Smith tells us that every man is no doubt by nature first and principally recommended to his own care, and that's right. It's fit for him to do that. Meanwhile, in um, uh, Mansfield Park, there's a character that says, we all have a better guide in ourselves than any other person can be. That's actually the quote that I have here on my little book necklace. It's supposed to be a little replica of Mansfield Park. So I got this necklace because that's one of my favorite Smith quotes. So one of the characters that um, exemplifies prudence in Austin's work is this character called Charlotte Lucas. She's in Pride and Prejudice. And Charlotte is from a relatively impoverished gentry family, as most of the heroines in, or most of the, the characters in, in Austin's work tend to be. And uh, she, uh, is getting to an age that she realizes her family can't take care of her forever. She needs to find a, a, a nice match in the marriage market. So she ends up marrying the ridiculous Mr. Collins because that's the prudent thing to do so that she doesn't end up being a burden to her family. One of the lesser known novels of, of, uh, of Jane Austen's is Persuasion. And there's a character there, the main character, Anne Elliot, She's uh, very prudent, almost, uh, almost too prudent. She, in her youth, was uh, uh, encouraged to turn down a marriage proposal because it wasn't deemed to be a, a high enough match for her, and then she ends up regretting it. But then she later turns around and, uh, and, 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 uh, and rectifies that situation. She's also prudent with her family. Her father and her uh, sister are just... They spend, 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 and get into a lot of debt, and Anne gets them back on track. Now, there's a character in Mansfield Park, the one who had the Smithian quote before. She was initially thought to be imprudent. She seems to be imprudent, because unlike Charlotte Lucas, who accepts the marriage proposal that seems to be a, you know, a step up for her, uh, um, Fanny refuses the proposal from uh, Henry Crawford. And now, so a little background on Fanny. She had been um, taken in by her rich aunt and uncle. So she's from a poor family. She was taken in by her rich aunt and uncle, and, and they helped raise her. And so, you know, for her to turn down a marriage proposal like this seemed very odd. And initially, Sir Thomas, her uncle, was very disappointed in her. He comes to her and he scolds her. He sends her out to take a walk. You know, maybe maybe her head will clear. Um, and, and eventually, he sends her back to her family to, to, to get, give her the message that, hey, you know, here's where you come from. Here's where you might end up if you don't uh, take this good deal. Um, so now on to benevolence. Uh, when you think of benevolence and Smith, this is the famous quote that everybody thinks of, right? It's not from the benevolence of the butcher that we get our, our meat, but from his own self-interest. But that's not what we're talking about here. In Theory of Moral Sentiments, Smith tells us that to be other-directed is the, the pinnacle of human morality. To feel much for others and little for ourselves. So Smith is arguing that, that uh, it is virtuous to be uh, benevolent. I'll bring in Austin after I get back to get through, to get, get through justice. Justice is pretty straightforward in Smith. Uh, it, it's, it's, People get what they deserve. People, you should get what you deserve, and you should not accept that which you do not 
uh, deserve. So if you owe someone uh, 10 pounds, you pay them back in full. Now there's an important difference between justice and benevolence that we see in both Smith and Austin. Justice, Smith says, is the main pillar that upholds all of society. Without justice, our society would crumble into atoms. Justice is required by everyone. You can't be virtuous unless you are just. Benevolence, though, isn't the foundation of the building. It's the ornament that embellishes the building. So it is optional. Right? It's, that's how you get moral perfection, is by being benevolent. But it's not required of everyone. And we tend to be most benevolent towards people that we know and care about. We're just to everybody that we deal with in order to be virtuous, and then we're benevolent to those close to us. All right, so benevolence and justice we see in Sir Thomas, Fanny's uncle, that initially scolded her for um, not uh, marrying Henry Crawford. First of all, he takes Fanny in from her poor, poor family. That shows uh, benevolence there. Uh, at one point in the novel, she's invited to dinner at an estate next door, and her miserly aunt thinks that Fanny should walk, but Sir Thomas insists on getting her a carriage. When Fanny's brother comes into town, he throws a ball in her honor. Again, very benevolent. And while he's scolding Fanny for refusing Henry, he asks her why there's no fire in her sitting room. And she says, oh no, Aunt Norris won't allow it. It's too extravagant. I, I don't have a fire. So again, I, I mentioned he sends her out for a walk. Maybe she'll uh, clear, clear her head. She comes back, and there's a fire in her room. And she learns from her, the chambermaid that um, Sir Thomas has arranged to have a fire for her every night. So even though he was upset with her, he was both just and benevolent. So we have these PB&J virtues that are rooted in something that both Smith and Austin refer to as self-command. So self-command isn't exactly a term that we throw around these days. So let me explain a little bit what, what they mean by self-command. So it is we, we have to have self-command in order for us to develop virtues. All right, so this is an old TV commercial for an over-the-counter medicine called Anison. There were a series of commercials where people would kind of lose their temper and then take Anison and then be all better. So let me uh, play this uh, clip. I think the sound is going to be uh, good enough. Yes, the big difference in Anderson 
makes a big difference in the way you feel. Myself some of that. I don't know about you. Um, so sometimes in today's world, self-control has this repressive nature to it. Oh, you're just holding in your feelings. You're not being true to yourself. Or sometimes it's seen as like you're just kind of white-knuckling through a situation. But self-command is, is more than that. You know, in that, in that video, the mom comes over, complains there's not enough salt. I don't know, everything I cook for my mother never has enough salt. I don't know what it is. So she, you know, the, the, the daughter loses it, but then she has her buffer, her, her, uh, her uh, Anison, and she has tea with her mother. She makes a good situation out of a bad situation. She's not just putting up with her mother at that point. She actually um, turns it into a good situation. So the classic example in Austin of self-control or self-command and non-self-command is the two sisters in Sense and Sensibility. Uh, Eleanor Dash Dashwood is the model of sense or reason. Her sister Marianne is the example of sensibility. Now sensibility, in today's language, sensibility means kind of like what, being sensible? But in, in Smith and Austin's time, sensibility meant more being, uh, having a sense of others. And, and, and a sense of uh, having a, being passionate, showing sensibility. So Marianne is, is the epitome of passion, and Eleanor is the epitome of reason. Both of them have love interests. Both of them think that they've been jilted. In Marianne's case, she actually has been jilted. Um, but they both have very different reactions to being jilted. So let's first look at Eleanor's reaction and then Marianne's reaction. Jane, Jane Austen writes that once, she, once Edward leaves and, and, and uh, she, thinks she, she thinks she's been jilted, Eleanor was silent, her security sunk. Because Eleanor was another one of those relatively impoverished gentry women looking for a husband, and now her security is sunk. But her self-command did not sink with it. She talked plainly, without emotion. She was not really showing her grief. Marianne, on the other hand, Eleanor took Marianne aside every once in a while and said, you know, you might not want to show your feelings for Willoughby in such an open manner. It's not really the proper thing to do, but Marianne would have none of it. She abhorred all concealment of passion. So now let's look at the two sisters in another clip. Mr. Willoughby. How are you doing, Miss Ashley? I'm very well. Thank you. How's your family? We're all extremely well, Mr. Willoughby. Thank you for your kind inquiry. Will you shake hands with me? I'm too excited. Will you, what is the matter? 
to see me? Well, you're not in London. Have you not received my letters? Yes, I have the pleasure of receiving the information that's very good as to send me. Heaven's sake, really. Tell me what is wrong. I think you're most obliged. If you'll excuse me, I must rejoin my party. no self-command, not in public and not in private. As she goes home, she lies in bed all day, she makes herself physically ill over the breakup, almost to the point of death. Real pity party. Now Smith is more on Eleanor's side. The best way to get over grief is to get out and be about in society. Be with people who don't know what your problems are. And that'll help you get a grip on things. And that's what Eleanor did. She, uh, she's never dejected. She does not try to avoid society. So Eleanor gives us an example of Smith's concept of self-command. But you know, it's not easy. So again, you're not just controlling. You're not just white-knuckling. You are trying to make the best of a bad situation. You get out and about, you're, get out and about you're, you're busy, you're, you're intentionally trying to move on. And you're other directed. When Eleanor thinks she's been jilted, she actually starts to feel sorry for Edward because she's learned that he's engaged to the vulgar Lucy Steele. Marianne would not have done that. But it does require effort. It requires intention, intentional action. So the key to understanding self-command is that it's not just repressing your feeling. It's not just white knuckling. Instead, I'm going to use an image that Patrick Callahan <clears throat> provided to Cecil and I as we were writing the book. Uh, Professor Callahan likened self-command to sailing. So when you're sailing, you can't control the winds, but you can use your sails to govern the winds to take you where you want to go. And likewise, you can't change the things that happen to you to cause you grief, but you can use your self-command to govern your passions to get you where you want. But even Eleanor has some lapses in self-command. When she finds out, spoiler alert, 
that, uh, that uh, Herbert Loved is not engaged at anymore to Lucy Steele. She's moved on to somebody richer. And um, that uh, Edward actually does love her afterwards. Um, Eleanor tries to be calm. I will be calm. I will be mistress of myself. And you will not hide. So yes, Eleanor doesn't quite lose it that much in the novel. They made a big deal out of it for the movie. In the novel, Eleanor could sit it no longer. She almost ran out of the room. And as soon as the door was closed, burst into tears of joy. So she had a little more self-commitment than we see in the movie. But you know what? Adam Smith would be okay with that reaction. Smith tells us that the indulgence of even such excessive affections is, upon many occasions, not only agreeable, but delicious. And so Eleanor gives us the delicious loss of self-command when she finds out that uh, her, true her true happiness will be coming along. All right, enough of the virtue. Now on to the vices. The, the three vices that we analyze is vanity, pride, and greed. So we'll look at each one of those in turn. Smith tells us that vain people care a lot what other people think. And vain people are willing to take praise without being praiseworthy. They're willing to be loved without being lovely. Right? So they're kind of fake in that way. But that, 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 that's what makes them happy in the short run. In the novel Persuasion, Anne Elliot's father is Sir Walter Elliot, and in the very first chapter, he's described as this man that spent the only book he's ever read is this book that outlines who's noble, you know, who's noble in society, the, the baronetage. He's got mirrors all over his house, very, very vain. He he goes into debt, he overspends because he wants people to think that he's richer than he is, and that's what gets him into trouble. Now, some people think of pride and vanity as similar things, but there's a very different uh, connotation to both of those words in both Smith and in Austin. Smith says, we call it pride or vanity, 
But the former involves, uh, uh, for the most part, a considerable degree of blame. Right? So even though the two vices seem similar, one vanity, uh, one, one pride is excessive self-estimation. I think too much of myself. Whereas in, when a vain person thinks less of themselves, that's why they need the constant feedback from other people. And almost the same, similar thing is said by Mary, Benton, Mary Bennett. Um, vanity and pride are different things, although the words are used synonymously. A person may be proud without being vain. Pride relates to our opinion of ourselves, so there's overestimation of self and pride, and then underestimation of, of ourself and vanity. So it's almost as if Jane Austen is channeling Adam Smith here again. All right, so pride is certainly a grave and sullen passion. Some pride, though, is good, as long as it's deserved pride. Right? You, if you're going to be praised, you need to be praiseworthy. Um, it's only when pride becomes excessive that it becomes a problem, excessive pride. All right, so the two proud people that uh, we can point to in Austin's uh, works are um, uh, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet from Pride and Prejudice. I mean, if the novel has pride in the, no in the title, it's probably going to be about pride. Uh, so yes, Mr. Darcy is definitely proud. Uh, he's too proud to even dance with Elizabeth at the dance. Um, and then Elizabeth realizes that she has been proud too, and it's only at the end of the novel that they both overcome their pride and find each other. Yeah, these are the, this, is, this is from the zombie version. The last vice is greed. And a lot of times, Smith gets mischaracterized as teaching us that greed is good. Remember that benevolence quote is not from the benevolence of the butcher and the brewer and the baker that we get our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. Some people translate that into, oh, Smith is saying greed is good. Greed is good because it gives us our dinner. And, you know, but that's not what he's saying. Instead, greed is an extravagant passion. It causes us to disturb others to get what we want. And so greed is actually bad for us and can cause us in the long run shame and regret. There's a character in Northanger Abbey, General Tilney, who's an epitome of greed. First of all, he married for money. Um, he refuses to sanction his daughter's marriage to her longtime love interest until, surprise, at the end, he becomes a viscount, and then it's okay. Um, he eyes the heroine of Northanger Abbey, Catherine Moreland, for his son because he thinks she's rich. He invites her to, to stay at their abbey and all of that. And as soon as he finds out she's poor, he kicks her out. So he is a greed man, and he's an unhappy man. So how can we today, and we earlier, develop the virtues and avoid the vices? Well, Smith and Austin give us this uh, concept of an impartial spectator. The impartial spectator is a feedback mechanism that helps us develop virtue and avoid vice. 
And uh, so basically, remember, go back to the very first concept. We want to be loved, but we want to be worthy of that love. We want to be praised. We want to be worthy of that praise. So we are happy when other people like what we do. And we're unhappy when we disappoint others. That's kind of a, a key insight here. So um, because that's true, then by interactions with others, we learn what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. We get approval, uh, Austin and Smith would have called, called it approbation, and disapproval, Austin and Smith would have called it disapprobation, from our interactions with others. Um, I think about it this way. A, a, a Smith scholar, James Audison, tells a story about joke telling. Like, how do we learn the appropriate jokes and non-appropriate jokes? Like, think of a joke that you could tell right now that would be inappropriate for this group. Don't, don't tell it, but think about it. How do you know that? Did you... Did somebody give you a list of jokes that are good and bad? You know, because maybe you told that once and nobody laughed. Or maybe you saw somebody else tell something like that and nobody laughed. Smith actually has a whole thing about joke telling in, in his works. So that, that, that's that feedback mechanism. All right, so we're going to look at the character Emma. Uh, just a little background from this, uh, this movie clip. Emma, unlike most of the other heroines in Austen's work, is a rich gentry woman. Um, she's uh, one of the, I think, the wealthiest family in town. And she is now uh, taken Harriet under her wing, her protege. And this is a scene where they're all in a, um, out, outside at a picnic. And uh, the other characters, uh, there's a married couple, the Eltons. There's uh, Mr. Knightley, who is kind of uh, the main male character in the book. And then there's also this, this sort of annoying character, Miss Bates. Miss Bates is a not relatively poor, a darn poor gentrywoman, and who's, uh, who's uh, a spinster living with her widowed mother. And so, uh, but, but they kind of make her part of the group anyway. So those are the cast of characters. Uh, and then there's also a, a, a guy, Frank, who's uh, Harriet's interested in. But anyway, um, we will uh, look at the feedback that Emma gets from her friends about her behavior towards Miss Bates. All right, well, maybe we won't look at the feedback from Miss <laughs> Bates. Um, so I'll try to uh, uh, reenact the, the clip for you. Basically, uh, they're, uh, they're talking about playing a game. And the game is everyone has to tell Miss Emma, either one really funny thing or three really boring things, right? So it's really, so she, they, it's just a game that they're playing. And so Emma just can't even uh, uh, hold it in. She says, oh, well, Miss Bates won't have any trouble telling me three boring things, right? And everybody, there's like dead silence. It's a very awkward moment. And everybody's just like, oh my God, I can't believe she just said that. And then Miss Bates is just mortified and just awkward silence. And then afterwards, Mr. Knightley um, criticizes, follows Emma and said, badly done, very badly done. We have to have respect for someone like Miss Bates because she's a good character. 
She's fallen in stature because, you know, her father was widowed, she never married, and she'll, she's going to sink further. You know, people are already giving them uh, extra hams and baskets of apples. So the longer she lives, the more she's going to fall in terms of socioeconomic status. And, you know, Smith says the same thing. He said, I mean, he doesn't talk about Miss Bates, but he says we ought to have especially great respect for people who have fallen in life and yet still kept their character, like Miss Bates has. So we argue in the book that Mr. Knightley serves as Emma's feedback mechanism. In fact, at one point in the novel, Emma internalizes Mr. Knightley's feedback when she reaches out to her arch nemesis, Jane Fairfax, and she says, oh, if only Mr. Knightley could see how, how nice I'm being to Jane. So she internalizes. And Smith says that's what we do. We, we get feedback while we're developing. Maybe we tell the bad joke and we get the feedback. Um, and then over time, we internalize that feedback, and so we can judge ourselves. All right, so that's uh, about it for the virtues and the vices and how we develop them. The last part of the book talks about the respect of business and how that has changed over time in Austin and Smith's days and today. And for that, we build on the work of Deirdre McCloskey with her trilogy, The Bourgeois Virtues, Bourgeois Dignity, and Bourgeois Equality. Uh, I highly recommend. Um, so, in, 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 we start with this concept that a lot of times business and business people don't get very good rep reputations, you know, going into business, right? Oh, it's so much better to work for a nonprofit or the government, you know. Um, so let's look at how businessmen are treated in Mansfield Park. They're remote, they're unpunctual, they're fraudulent, okay? drawing forth bitter lamentations. It's better to consult with your friends than to try to do business with a professional man. So really looking down on business. And Smith saw that. He said that in pre-commercial society, so before, the, before we have markets to, to coordinate activity, to trade was disgraceful. It was better to do something without reward. That was seen as noble. But to trade one thing for another is seen as, as demeaning. And Smith cautions us that even in a market society, this attitude, this negative attitude toward business remains. One of the characters that exemplifies this is Sir William Lucas in uh, Pride and, and, and Prejudice. He had made a tolerable trade in in a tolerable fortune in trade, but as soon as he gets rich enough, he buys a knighthood and he moves to the country where he can remain unshackled by business. So he escapes the commercial world. Uh, the Eltons, uh, uh, that I had mentioned previously, and Mr. Elton is a, a, a pastor and Mrs. Elton is his wife, they, uh, they are being, they're looked down upon because of their alliances with trade. And Mrs. Elton can only go so far up the ladder in society because she uh, has her roots in trade. Now, the Cole family is 
is where we start to see some of the shift into a respect for business. The Cole family were described as, oh, very good sort of people. But on the other hand, of low origin in trade and only moderately genteel. So the Cole family, they're new in town, and they, they decide to throw a big party. And uh, Emma is just vexed, vexed over how she can possibly turn down their invitation. She knows she's going to get invited, of course, but it's not for them to determine the, the means with which we're going to interact. Right? She's the hot, she's the richest one in the, in the area, and so they shouldn't invite her. Then it turns out they've invited everybody in Highbury except Emma and Mr. Woodhouse. And then all of a sudden she's keen to enjoy the party. Uh, they eventually uh, work that out. Another example from Emma uh, in terms of different points of view about respect for business is with the character Mr. Robert Martin. Mr. Robert Martin uh, is a, uh, a farmer that works some of Mr. Knightley's land. And he's smitten with Emma's protege, Emma. Of course, Emma thinks Mr. Martin is not good enough for her friend. She calls him a completely gross, vulgar prop, uh, farmer, thinking of nothing but profit and loss. Mr. Knightley, though, recognizes the talent that Robert Martin has and thinks of him as respectable, intelligent, despite his, his, his farming background. Now, Smith tells us that markets and commercial activity can lead to virtue. In fact, he says the road to virtue and to fortune are almost the same. In order to do well in business over the long term, you have to look out, you have to be sensitive to the needs of your customers, much like the butcher and the brewer and the baker. Honesty, Smith said, is the best policy when you're doing business. Again, we're talking long term here. Now, in Northanger Abbey, from oddly enough, the pride for the greedy General Tilney, we get a little glimmer of respect. He's got two sons, but he, even though they'll inherit all of this money, he still thinks they need a job. So he says, the money is nothing, but employment is the thing. So even he recognized that in order to flourish, you need to be productive. All right, so what are the lessons that we can draw from Smith and Austin? Develop some self-command. Be like a sailor. Govern our passions so we can balance our sense and our sensibility. Be prudent, but, I mean, don't be miserly, but be prudent self-care, show benevolence to the people we care about, but justice to everyone, remember justice is required, and have pride in our true accomplishments, deserved pride is good, but don't become vain or greedy. Show respect to those who earn it, much like the Cole family started to get respect. And finally, these overall enlightenment themes that Smith and Austin give us are thinking for ourselves, tolerating others, and always striving for improvement. 
And we believe that Smith and Austin give us that moral path that if we follow, will lead to that self-improvement and a flourishing life. So that, in a nutshell, is what we cover in Pride and Profit. You can check us out. We have a Facebook page, and that's the, we have a, uh, you can search for the, um, the book on, um, on the publisher's website, and I'd be happy to take any questions you might have. Thank you for listening to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series. To stay up to date on all the lectures in the series, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you prefer. For information on upcoming lectures and other events and activities hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University, follow us on Twitter at Koch Center or on Facebook at Koch Center ESU.